Well, we're so pleased to have Michael Duffy, film editor on the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Good to be. I guess, tell us a little bit about how you first got into the business. How did you first become involved in editing? Well, I grew up in uh, near very close to Pinewood Studios. So a lot of my friends and their parents were all in the business. And, um, and just to clarify for the folks out there, that's in London. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, in London. And um, so I, I, my interest, for, I just love going to the movies. So, um, and what, what kind of I, movies did you grow up really enjoy watching? Well, in those days, it was mostly British, uh, you know, films, comedies, and you know, carry-on movies and all those sort of things. But I mean, it was just—it wasn't just uh, those films, but it was, you know, the Bond movies and all those sort of things. It just, uh, you know, and of course the big American movies. But uh, and so anyway, the my interest sparked, and, and actually, it was my headmaster at school who got me my first job in the film industry. What job was that? That was at a documentary company in uh, in in uh, London, in Bond Street. And then Flashes of Dissolves, I ended up working with a director called Peter Hunt, and uh, who was also a one-time editor and also a great editor. He uh, took me under his wing and taught me a lot. So, uh, and in fact, gave me my first film to edit, which was Shout of the Devil with Lee Marvin. Wow. And in those days, uh, you were actually cutting on film. Yes, I was indeed on a movie. Ever. At what at what point did you end up making the transition to digital? Actually, it was quite late. Uh, well, not it wasn't that late, but um, I'm trying to think. The last film that I actually did on film was uh, Rumbling the Bronx, I think. Oh, with Jackie Chan. Yeah. And uh, then I'm from the Bronx, so I remember that movie quite well for, <laughs> for it distinctly not being in the Bronx. Right, with all the mountains in the background. Yeah. Um, it was a fun film. It was a great movie. Uh, anyway, the uh, for what it was. <laughs> yeah. And then I got um, offered a job on as a, to help out on uh, Kingpin. And that was the on Avid. And uh, Kingpin, the movie uh, with Woody Harrelson? Yes. Oh, yeah. that was an awesome movie. And uh, I went in and did the last reel on the film, and, and it was all on Avid. And, uh, so that was I a had, really funny film. Yeah, it was. Hilarious. Yeah. The Farley Brothers. Anyway, the, um, so I, I went on to that, and, and I had to have a crash course in the Avid. And uh, I have one friend who was a real expert on it, and I had him on on, on the speaker all the time, was telling me how to do everything. And uh, but uh, after doing it like a crash course on that, uh, it was it all suddenly it was like, wow, why am I cutting on film? You know, so that's interesting. Yeah, and, and I mean, you you've yeah. worked on uh such a wide variety of features over several decades could could you share with us a few examples of how the editing style you decided for for example universal soldier versus stargate or london has fallen and and stargate, through I the mean, outpost stargate and universal soldier were uh, roland emmerich and uh, he he has his own kind of feelings and and uh he he has a whole in his head he has everything 
kind of put together. The style was really his, uh, what he had in mind. And, and most, to be honest, everyone asks, do I have a style? The f- I find the film itself determines the style. That it's like I don't, I don't go in thinking, oh, I'm going to cut this this way. It's like the director gives me the material. And sometimes I know the director, so I, I know exactly what he wants. But other times, you know, it takes you like, I find it takes me a week to discover what the director is about. You know, what he's thinking, what he wants, what he's what his imagination is, where his imagination is going, reading the script and then seeing the film. Because when you read the script, you see one, you read it one thing, you picture something, and then when your director does it, he does something totally different. So you, you have to, <laughs> you just have to keep adapting yourself to whatever the director gives you. So it's not what I go in preconceived idea. I take my ideas from what the director gives me. So every film is slightly different, but it's different because that's what the director is. You know, I'm, I'm uh, an instrument, I think, in in sense that you're, you know, your director has developed an idea and a story and, uh, and is portraying it, and you're trying to give him his vision as best as you can. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's, uh, but, uh, you know, and... And then it becomes a collaboration to, you know, change and adjust to do whatever to make it work. I've always been so curious about that as far as the relationship between the director and the editor. Do you find that some directors are a little bit more hands off and let you do your thing? I'm sure, you know, I know that there's a period of time when you're just cutting and then you start to work with the director. But could you talk a little bit about the different styles of different directors in terms of yeah, how they would work. I mean, a lot of directors are hands-on. Like uh, the, on the outpost, the uh, director was very hands-on. Um, and but he didn't change a lot, but he just, you know, he wanted to examine other alternatives. And we usually, mostly always end up back to where we started. But, you know, he at least he was confident that that was the absolute best it could be. And um, so he, there's that way of working. And then there's, there are other directors you know, they'll look at the cut and go, wow. Uh, I, you know, I've had many directors say that's the best cut, they, first cut they've ever seen. So, you know, a lot of them are then quite happy to just just check out that it's the best performance or something like that. But uh, for the most part, they'll just let it go and uh, just push ahead to get the film finished. And by the way, I loved the outpost. We were just sort of talking about that before we originally started recording but um we had also had uh jonathan younger on the podcast from millennium um, oh right, right, right of course and uh so we had spoken about the outpost previously but i just revisited the film again and it definitely rewards repeat watchability <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I actually did um at the, at the end of last year i did a director's cut of it and put back another six minutes into the film oh nice yeah, was so, that the main difference that there's an, an additional six minutes or was the director's cut? Was there like a, a lot of cuts different throughout the film? No, I mean, he, there were, there were just odd little scenes that we had lifted uh, that uh, he felt, you know, oh, I'm doing the director's cut and might as well put them back in, you know. Nice. Uh, I mean, the film, I think, played very well. I know that on, on some features you've collaborated with another editor, some on certain features, there's numerous editors listed. Mm-hmm. For example, on Open Range, there's 
Miklos, Miklos. right? Yeah. And on well, Sahara. Miklos is an editor that I worked with uh, on. Uh, I was the I did a film called Three Thousand Miles to Graceland, and uh, with Kurt Russell. Yeah, and Kevin and Costner. Kevin Costner. That's right. Yeah. And that was my introduction to Kevin Costner. And Miklos, uh, the director, was uh, who did a lot of music videos and uh, commercials and stuff. He said, "Could I take on Miklos as my second editor?" You know. And I said, "Sure, you know, no problem." And um, he was a young guy who was actually very, I think, really good, good editor. And I was so happy that I got introduced to him. So then Kevin asked me to do open range, and he said, "I think we should have two editors." And um, we came up with, "Well, why don't we use Miklos, who was on uh, on uh, on Three Thousand Miles?" And he said, "That'd be great." So I brought him on to uh, open range, and uh, the nice thing, you know, he was a young editor who was beginning, and so. If I wanted to change something, he didn't get upset by it, you know. Nice. So because it's always hard when you're working with somebody, and, and when you're the lead editor, and I'm usually always the lead editor, it's hard if you want to go back and change something or adjust something. So you need to find somebody who's um, amicable to that. And, and Miklos was really—he was a great editor, so uh, he was a pleasure to work with, you know. So. And is I guess is the main kind of reasoning for bringing in another editor like that is t- to save time, or or is it more to just have another set of eyes on it? Well, no, it's um, usually it's because like London has fallen, uh, you have a deadline, so it's just not physically possible. Especially like London has fallen, they had a lot of action and a lot of visual effects and stuff like that. With and the delivery time wasn't it was quick turnaround on the phone, so we needed. Uh, I came actually. I I was the second editor that was brought on, and the way we did it was um, the other edit Martin, the other editor took the first half and I took the second half, and um, and we <laughs> we worked on it that way, you know, to uh, get it done and get it finished. Nice and. Uh, so you know, every every film is slightly different. I wasn't the lead editor, and so uh, it was a nice, nice collaboration between the two of us. This next question goes to what we what we're talking about a little bit already. But you've worked with both Roland Emmerich and Vic Armstrong several times, and I'm sure each of the directors had their different working methodologies. How does that influence you as an editor? Do they bring the same working style to each film that you collaborate with them on? Well, Roland is is a much more like he'll be in the editing room and he'll be there. He'll be you know the last one to leave, and uh, he uh, and he's always think you know he's uh, he 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 thinks twenty four seven the film. And so he, when he comes in in the morning, he's, you know, I had an idea. Let's try doing this, this, and then, you know. And so uh, you go, okay, and you get at it, and you keep going till about 10 o'clock at night. And, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. All right, I like that. And then, you know, he'll go away, and uh, he'll come in the next day and say, oh, I had another idea. And uh, so, you know, he's a very much, and, and he'll stay there until 
it's finished, you know, and so he, he'll, he won't desert the post as a way. <laughs> uh, Vic, Vic is a little bit more easygoing in that, uh, you know, he, he has an idea of what he wants. And uh, if he sees what he wants, then he's happy. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, he's, uh, and uh, he's also technically brilliant. So um, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, it's a different style, but they both work, you know, and they both get a good result. Well, actually, one thing I'm curious about, especially in the early days when you were editing a film like Stargate, that like early films that had like visual effects and things like that, was that more difficult? Like, would you put just placeholders of here's where the VFX are going to go and that sort of thing? Yeah, we would, um, you know, they, they storyboard a lot of things. So what we did was film the storyboards. We actually filmed... Uh, and shot the storyboards. Um, That's interesting. So then it becomes a, a hybrid of like an yeah. animatic just in that sort of section. So then if there was like a section where, uh, you, you know, it pans from, say, the, the, the crowd to the big pyramid, you'd have like a drawing that uh, shows the crowd and then it was a big arrow and it takes you up to then the drawing of a pyramid. And uh, so you put in that. So at least, as as anybody watching it, or even an editorial, you know what's what's going to go there, and and what the, there's going to be a visual effect. Um, the problem comes is when the studio in those days always wanted to preview everything, and it, you know at times we we just weren't ready with the visual effects to preview, and uh, which proved not to be very very good. But uh, thanks to uh, Roland and Dean Devlin, they they uh, we had some not so good numbers on uh, Stargate at the beginning. But uh, uh, Roland and Dean um, came up with a new story idea, and um, and so we were able to turn the film around quite very well. And, uh, I think I was reading up about that, about uh, Ra, not to give a spoiler here on Stargate from 1994, but was one of the story changes about Ra being an extraterrestrial versus an Egyptian? Yeah, he, he, <coughs> one, of the, one of the criticisms in the ori original version was that one never knew the bad people, the bad, like Ra worked for another group of people that we never saw. And uh, so then Roland and Dean came up with a storyline that uh, made Ra the, uh, the, the actual bad guy. And so they, you know, did visual effects with his eyes and make him creepy and creepier. And, uh, and, and, uh, and how late was that done? Sort of how late in the game was that done? Like in like, as the shoot was going on or, no, that that went on after the first preview. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And um, so then, you know, we did a little reshoot for a couple of days. Uh, but the, the fortunate thing was that they were talking in this uh, language that was a real language, but it it hasn't been used in a hundred years. So nobody really speaks the language. So we, and so all we had to do was change the storyline by changing the subtitles. 
That makes sense. So, you know, they'd be talking the, the exact same scene would be exactly the same. But instead of saying, oh, he went up to, to outer space, you just change it to, oh, he came from Earth, you know, and nobody would know that you were changing the story. So we were very fortunate. It's all about problem solving. Yeah, so yeah. we were able to, just by changing the subtitles, we were able to change the story quite well. Do you ever find yourself, is that, you know, one of the sort of challenging situations of being an editor, for instance, if the coverage is sort of weird or, you know, let's say the 180 line is crossed in, in an odd way and then you have to think of creative solutions to kind of cover those things up? That, I mean, it happens on every show. You, 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 I mean, you have to... A, you know, you have a few problems and you have to solve them. I've done quite a lot of, um, what should we call it, doctor work on films. And, and the big thing is always trying to create, uh, for me, the, usually the problem is stems from the character development and uh, the, or the lack of it. And then you, so you go in and you try to make change people's performance slightly so that you're more endeared to the character and uh, and you know a bit more backstory to the character and so you uh, you know you, you you have a lot of problems like that and then the technical problems actually are you have been doing it i mean i hate to sound arrogant but I've been doing it so long now that you, you usually know how to get around it. I love that, though. Now that there's something to say about that. You know, it becomes like muscle memory with certain things. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you, you don't panic with certain situations where maybe a newer editor might think, oh, man, we're, we're, we're toast here. But you might think, okay, no, it's going to be okay. We're going to work I mean, through my, it. My philosophy has always been the director gives you the material. You have to make that material work. I mean, you know, a lot of people will go out and be shoot stuff, but uh, I tried to make what we have work first, and then once that, you know, if there's still a hole or there's a floor, uh, then you go and do a reshoot and fix the problem. You know? Yeah, I come from an editing background myself. You know, I started working on much smaller projects than you did when I was first editing, but it was on the. It was sort of on the old school VHS decks, like right before digital hit. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked for a, a very small production company that was that were that was doing events and things like that. But I think just learning that kind of gave me more of an appreciation for for then. By the time digital did sort of become more prevalent, of because I learned when I was learning editing, it was on linear decks, so I learned a mm -hmm. linear editing where you had to kind of move along, you know, couldn't make too many mistakes <laughs> and then change them around later. Yeah, right. So, so I definitely have a, an immense respect for what you do. It's, it's almost like the invisible art, they call it, right? Yeah. I mean, in, you know, there's, there's definite uh, films that uh, I've, I don't want to name them, but the, the, I've done, you know, two or three films even in the last few years that uh you know needed a little help and um fortunately i was able to help them and and turn them around and uh, make them you know actually well uh, 
I've seen that happen. I've definitely seen earlier cuts of movies, and then as it's getting edited, it plays just radically different. Even certain people's performances play radically different when you play a rough cut uh, of a movie. You know, sometimes certain performances could look sort of rough, and then yeah, and no, it's uh, it's. Uh, I mean, I like actually going on and you know a film that I had nothing to do with. Uh, you know, in that I wasn't involved in the shooting or the thing, and uh, the director and the and, and the previous editor had worked together and done what they thought was you know a good movie. But then when they tested, it turns out that it wasn't so good, and so they bring in somebody else to take a look at it and see what they can do. And that that kind of job for me is actually quite fun because it's it's like you see what the mistake was. And it, the, the, the big thing is to see what the problem is. And once you know what the problem is, it, for me, editorially, um, it, it becomes then a challenge to make that uh, problem go away. That makes sense. Uh, At first you're understanding yeah. what the problem is and then you can identify the solution. It worked for a long time for Canon Films, which was... Uh, you know, a long time ago, but uh, uh, very yeah, I'm very familiar with them. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to watch. <laughs> I uh, remember watching Masters of the Universe. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I, I didn't work on that one, but uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, anyway, but one was always, you know, you would get the script and it says, 200 tanks and 3,000 soldiers are coming over the hill." Uh, to attack the village and then when you got the film you know it was two jeeps and uh, 20 men you know so <laughs> you had to uh, kind of learn to adapt and to improvise and make that two two jeeps look like 20 jeeps and you know it was it was uh, so you, you you had to become very creative in those days just by the lack of money and the lack of yeah production you know so uh it uh it made you it was a good education for me that's one thing i've heard over and over and over again is that uh is that limitations actually foster creativity which i, I totally believe that's true so you know i i i uh i mean some of the films i mean it's, it's strange some like you know, this, like some of the ninja films that I did for them are now becoming cult classics. You know, it's like American Ninja is like I, all the time getting questions from people about that film. And I saw that you were also an uncredited editor on Bloodsport. I don't know where that came from because I had absolutely nothing to do. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. uh, I was I was working there at the time. Oh, but, okay. I, I I absolutely didn't do anything on that. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it. Uh, I mostly did all the ninja movies and uh, things like that. And then nice. I me- I definitely remember watching those. Um, yeah. So so when you're working with your editorial department in general and coordinating with assistant editors, how does the process vary? by project or is there sort of a shorthand that you kind of have with uh, 
your assistant editors? Well, I try, if I, if I can, I try to use the same assistants, you know, like when I was working at Canon, I was there for like five, five years and I had the same assistant that whole time, you know, and he, uh, and he, I would have him do some work and, you know, putting scenes together and stuff like that because uh, we were on film. And then, um, you know, now they're all doing very well as editors. But now, you know, with the digital age, you don't have as many assistants. So you, ha you have to find yourself one really good one. And I've, thanks God, I've been very lucky and had great assistants working for me. And, uh, and the more you get to know them and trust them, then the more you get them to do, you know. So um, I like, I like their involvement and their, their, I like, you know, being able to show them something so tell me, what do you think, you know, is that working for you? And, uh, you know, they, they're, they're a very important part of the process, I think. Now, now do you sort of ascribe to the certain uh, philosophy that certain other editors do about kind of like a order of operations, like you cut for performance first and then for continuity and then things like that, or. No, I just go for it. Yeah. You just kind I of use it, your instincts. I do it all. First cut is, I mean, again, I mean, I'll cut a scene and it'll change a little bit, you know, here, there, and obviously during, uh, during the process of doing the director's cut. But generally it's pretty much, close to what ends up in the film. Nice. So I, I go for, I go, I mean, first I'm always looking at performance, but I'm also looking for uh, production value, you know, because that's important, you know, to, I mean, you're making a film, so you want to make the, the, the uh, make the look as impressive as possible. And, I thought uh, the I thought the outpost and I know I keep mentioning them, but I, I was really excited about that movie because it really just pulls you into that world. You know, you really feel like you're there with the characters in that outpost. And I thought that was done phenomenally well. And yeah, it had the, the, really the director, I was that's, yeah. that's all the director actually, because he Rod Lurie. He, yeah, he really uh, pulled everybody in and he he made everybody really a part of it and, and made everybody understand the whole situation and the whole environment. And, um, you know, that it's really all thanks to him that that happened. I think. Nice. Well, you guys did an outstanding job, the whole team. Yeah. But, uh, you know, originally also <clears throat> we were trying to do as many shots as, uh, you know, one take type thing. But in, in that kind of film, it just, you know, some areas it just didn't, didn't work. And in other areas, it helped a lot to give you that, uh, that feel of that you're in the situation and that you were very much a part of that uh, world. And um, <clears throat> so we, we, uh, we tried to stay with that as much as possible. During the action, it was a little bit more difficult. You've worked in a lot of different genres are there any that you haven't worked in yet that you would like to um i've pretty much 
during the course worked on most everything. Anything that I haven't really done is a romantic comedy. And I've always wanted to do a romantic comedy. Nice. But I've never done, I've never actually, <laughs> I mean, I've done films with comedy and I've done films with romance, but I've never done a romantic comedy. Is, is that the, is it the reason, is the reason a little bit because the industry does sort of pigeonhole people? Like after you've had success with like movies like Stargate and things like that, do they put you more in that, or like action films, do they put you more in that category? Like, oh, Michael I, Duffy is so great with action and so great with... Um, yeah, I think I think that's very true, actually. I, do, I mean, I, I definitely felt that. But um, and if, if somebody's doing a, a romantic comedy, they certainly don't suddenly think, oh, Michael Duffy would be good for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, but if there's a big action car chase in it, they go, oh, Michael Duffy would be good for that. So, yes, they do definitely, uh, you know, can, and... and uh, for a while there, I, even horror movies, I, I, I've done quite a few now. So, but um, you know, they don't think of you for horror movies. But uh, you've uh, even done. I've I've seen on your on uh, on your IMDb. There's even documentaries that you've worked on, right? Yeah, no, I've done a few documentaries. Um, it's a different. I, I find doing documentaries. Um, quite actually quite difficult yes you, yeah i do too you, you it's a whole different mindset you know it's like making a trailer i can't make trailers to save my life i mean i can and i've done it but you know i mean to make a trailer you have to be like a salesman because you're you're selling a film you know you're trying to get the audience to come and see, right. see but it. you can't give away too much in my opinion, I have a philosophy about trailers because I have a little bit of experience with it. You have mm -hmm. to give the flavor of the film, but not you can't give away the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, exactly. And I and for me, I'm so used to storytelling, and I'm all about story and you know character and development and stuff. And and to make a trailer, that just goes out the window. You know you, what you're doing is you're grabbing it. You know, you grab a line that it, it pulls the, it sucks the audience in, you know? and uh, and I think it's a brilliant art. Actually, making a good trailer is is uh, is, is amazing. But uh, <laughs> no, but that's a good point. You bring up a good point because it's not. It, sometimes the trailer could be a little deceptive because you're mixing around, you're taking liberties when you're editing a trailer of moving around certain shots that might not go together in the actual film, but just for the purpose of the trailer and getting somebody hooked. You yeah, know? it's like all those quick turns and looks, you know, and then suddenly a big explosion, you know, and the scenes are probably, you know, an hour apart from each other, but they look like they're all part of the same scene. You know? Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it's quite a talent. And I, 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 you know, applaud anybody who does it. It's good. And documentaries too, I think, anybody who can, you know, it's... Uh, I'm glad you say that because I've always said that, um, that I, I've always found documentaries to be some of the most challenging edits because, you know, on a feature film, you have the script, you know, there's, there's the director that has typically a very clear idea of what the film is about, but on a documentary... I feel like it happens quite often that you're really finding the narrative of the piece as you're editing. Well, also you have so much, usually on a document, you have so much material. So much material. 
you know, um, that you can have hours and hours and hours of footage and, uh, and you know, you have to basically bring it down to one hour. You know, you've got like two or three hundred hours of film. It takes you, you know, it can take you like three months to just to look at the footage. And, and then you have to cut it all down to one hour. It, it's uh, quite, and, and it, as you say, the, it, there's no, generally there's no real script. There's an idea, you know, we're going to show this and we're going to show that and we're going to show this. But there's no, at that point, some, even some of the dialogue, you know, the commentary of the dialogue is not written for it. So, yeah. It's it's a very inventive. I, I admire people who do it. And so, I mean, you've worked with also a lot of directors at this point. Are are there any other directors that you've yet to have collaborated with that you vote that you'd like to work on on future projects? Well, I mean, actually, I find every time I work with a, I like working with directors I've worked with before. I have to. I mean, there is there's some there's a familiarity which you know helps when you're editing because you know the style and what the person is is expecting from you. And um, but when you work with a new director, it's also I find it, uh, it it makes life a little bit more challenging, which is better for you, in fact. And. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of directors, obviously, one admires. Um, will I ever work with them? Probably not. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I, I, um, well, you've worked with a lot of great ones so far. You know, um, I've, I've, uh, I mean, I've enjoyed most everybody I've worked with. So, yeah. Nice. And uh, I know we talked a little bit about this before we were, we were recording, but where do you where do you typically edit your films? Um, do you usually use the same editing suite? I used I I I mean I used to have here in Hollywood. I used to have uh, rooms. I had an editing suite there maybe five years actually. It was nice. They had their own screening rooms and they had their own ADR stages. So. You know, one could uh, record, go and record, you know, if you had an actor come in, uh, sometimes like on the outpost, we had uh, actors coming in and the director used to say, oh, could you do this line for me? And uh, and they go, yeah, sure. And you just run upstairs and, you know, record it. And and, uh, and so that, and because I'd been there for so long, I had that uh, luxury of being able to say, hey, can I use your screening room or can I use the ADR room? Or, and um, and so that, that, uh, that was good. Um, I've been working, the last few films I've been doing in, I did in London and uh, in Bulgaria um, where they have a really good studio and, uh, and a great mixed stage. Shout out so, to Millennium Films and their awesome yeah, studio, yeah, Sofia, uh, Bulgaria. Um, so I've been enjoying actually working quite a lot from Bulgaria uh, and London. And, um, the, you know, but I do like working in a studio. Um, I, to, I like the, the, the interaction with other people, you know, especially creatively. You know, you can ask people's opinions or, you know, 
you get to get people's opinions sometimes when you don't want to. That's <laughs> part of the job, <laughs> right? You have to sort, you have to sort, filter everything, yeah. and uh, and so uh, yeah. But I do enjoy working more in a studio than just because, especially in editing, you're in a room, basically a dark room too. True. Usually. So. <clears throat> You know, just to be in a room by yourself, it's like being in lockdown. You know, <laughs> so, uh, so unless you have like your assistant next door, or, or you can call him in, or he can walk in anytime, you know, and, uh, or the post supervisor or stuff like that. You know, it's it's good to have these people around you who you can communicate with. That makes yeah, that's that's so important. And are are you are you ever essentially cutting the film as it's still shooting? Oh, yeah, I try that. I mean, if I start on the film from the beginning, then I will, as soon as they start shooting, the next day I'll be cutting it. You know? Nice. So, um, and then, you know, you, you show, the, after the first week, you, sh you show the director, you know, some scenes that you put together. And um, then he'll say, yeah, I like that. Or, I, you know, I cut, sometimes I'll cut a scene like bizarrely, just not bizarrely, but, you know, slightly, not quite what I was thinking, but just a little differently. Just mainly not because I expect the director to go, oh, wow, that's fantastic. But to say, oh, I, I'd prefer him if he didn't say, oh, I don't like that so much. I prefer it when you go from that to that or and uh, so you that way you get to know what his mindset is and i mean basically you want to deliver a picture that he's going to enjoy and wants and, and it's representative of what he was had in mind you know so, yeah no that makes that makes sense so yeah. some, as i say sometimes i'll cut a scene that's not actually the way that it's was intended but just to get a reaction but, and a negative reaction is 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 also more sometimes more important than the positive reaction. Yeah, because then you can understand the the contrast of uh, it's almost like pulling focus. It's like you have to turn the yeah. focus ring to see what's out of focus, so then you could then dial it into focus, right? Exactly. Some, something like exactly. that. So you know, the first week is always very important, and then once you've got, uh, if you figure out the director. Uh, and then uh, you can then proceed, and, and hopefully he'll like like pretty much everything. And then the other problem always is is figuring out the music that uh, yeah. uh, the director likes to, because a lot of you know now, especially on computer, when you're editing, you're putting in sound effects and music, and you know everything. Uh, I was just going to ask, yeah, that that. That's my next question about, you know, at what point in the cut does typically the score go into the soundtrack and, you know, does it, does well, it really change? How, how much does it change what you do? Well, like for instance, on the outpost, the director had engaged the composer actually before he started to shoot. So you knew that, this was the composer and it was his music. So he used to uh, give you ideas and send you ideas for the film. So, you know, and then the director was able to choose and decide what he liked and what he didn't like. 
other times you have to use a temp score from other movies. And uh, so you're like, a, <laughs> like for instance, Sicario was uh, like uh, the go-to for nearly every film that was edited. <laughs> After Sicario came out, everybody was using that score as a temp for their temp score. That was a great and, movie. Yeah. And so uh, like even I was, I was using it on Hunter Killer. And um, it was a great, great score, which uh, then gives, you know, the, the guy who is hired to compose the film <laughs> a challenge because then everybody wants to hear what, you, and they fall in love with what you put in as a temp score. Yeah. And, and uh, so then they have to do something different, which isn't what they're used to hearing. And uh, so it's always a big challenge for a composer. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it generally the director will have an idea of what kind of music he likes and wants. You know, and, and I guess that ties into a little bit uh, on the sound design <laughs> topic too that we talked about a little bit before we were recording. Yeah, but, and the sound design is, uh, is very important. And I generally put in a lot of sound effects you know, one like if I'm doing a car chase, like I want all the car gear changes and the acceleration and the brakes and the squeals and so all that stuff. And and, you, and that's where a good assistant is uh, very helpful because he'll help you do all that stuff and mix it all down. So so it's a full track when you start, and that, and that's a good guideline for the sound designer then to know what's the sort of thing you're expecting is there certain instances where they keep those exact sounds if if that's like the spot on sound or and then sometimes they change them or they usually have their own libraries and then they're changing they usually have their own libraries to be honest sometimes i think to myself why did you replace that sound that i had it was really much better (laughs) (laughs) um and so does the director so you know occasionally i have been known to uh, in the mix which hasn't always gone down very well but i have been known to actually go back to the my original edit and get the sound effect but but it's usually not me those requests it's actually the director who said you know what we had a much better sound effect for that in the film so um Occasionally that happens, but for the most part, they will bring in their own. Like I just did a film that had a, um, a car chase with a McLaren sports car. And uh, we had, you know, just generic sports car sounds in there. And, and they actually went out and filmed with a, and shot sound with a McLaren. So, uh, you know, they replaced all the sound and it sounded brilliant. So Nice. Yeah. Um and have there ever been instances where you're actually working with the director and there's there's a choice that you want to make with a take, but the director feels different? Like, have you ever butted heads with the director uh, where you feel really strongly and then they feel strongly? And then how, do, how, do, how does that usually get resolved? Um, well, usually the director, I mean, ultimately will get what he wants. Unless, uh, you know, later um, down the line, the director's choice wasn't right and, and so it gets changed, you know, which has, I mean, that does happen a lot. Uh, but, you know, generally the director always has, wins out 
So you, your job is, if you feel strongly against something, you will try and convince him to try it. And, and sometimes it's a compromise. So, you know, you end up with a compromise. But um, for the most part, the director does and, and should win. Um, but, you know, you can, I mean, I've had that all the time with directors, but. Um, and that's part of it. I mean, part of it is, is you are that other eye that could be more objective, you know, whereas a director might have some sort of emotional attachment to a scene because they were there shooting that scene and they knew how difficult it was. But, you know, let's say it's something's not working quite the same way. You know, you're probably, you're more objective. Right? Well, I mean, I'm, I, I, for sure you're more objective. I mean, for instance, you know, the film could be running really long and, and the director spent two a day setting up this shot where it you know, starts up on the sunset and comes down and just goes across this all the beautiful township and ends up, you know, with this person walking into shot and they go, wow, this is a great shot. But, you know, when, when you're looking at the film, it's like, oh my God, you got to speed this thing up. So, you know, he started at a different point much later. And, and he goes, you know, yeah, it's how long I spent setting this up. <laughs> mm, yeah, well, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but, <laughs> you know, you have to do what's best for the film. So ultimately, and, and uh, as long as the, the director's in, the, in agreement, you'll, you'll do it. And, uh, He'll agree to it, and and usually this, you know, the the other thing, of course, is that the studio generally has final cut, so um, they they will say, oh, that shot's way too long, and so he has to go, okay, fine, all right, do it your way, and um, and uh, so that's a lot of time also happens. Yeah. The studio had final cut, so they they will say that's in, that's out. And, um, and so you, you just have to make it work. Well said. Among your peers, who are some other editors that you like their work and appreciate their work? Well, that's, that's a good one. Uh, the, I mean, I like Steven Spielberg's editor a lot, Michael Kahn. Um, and Stuart Baird is another guy who used to, I think, I'm not sure if he's retired now, but. He was a great editor, and um, there was an editor called Frank Uriosby that I worked with a few times. Um, there's a lot of editors that uh, I like their work. Mark Health. I mean, there's just different people that uh, I really think are good editors. But uh, yeah, there's some some great ones out there. Uh, you're you're right up there with the best of them. <laughs> but uh, the uh, you know there's this um, there's a guy called Chris Levinson who's always done great movies. And, you know, this, I like Dylan Titchener too, who uh, works with Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, no, he's, I've never I don't know him at all actually, but I, I he's done, done some great. Did you work. did you see Phantom Thread? No, I didn't. I recommend it. It's a re really strong film. Hmm. Um, Is that what, just just come out? Uh, it came out almost three years ago. 
I would say maybe maybe a little more. Yeah, 2018, so three years, 2017. I, it, it's strange. I've, I've been away now for the last two or three years so much. I've spent outside of the country that I, I feel like I missed out on a lot of things. <laughs> That's one worth watching. It's with Daniel Day-Lewis, and I thought the performances were just so strong, really strong story. And that's 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 a that's a film that on paper, you know, it, it took me a while to watch it because it's like, oh, it's a period piece movie about a a man who's a woman's dressmaker. I'm like, well, I don't well, know. Actually, I, I do remember that coming out. Actually. Yeah, I didn't ever get to see it. So on paper, I'm like, I don't know if that's you know that's my type of movie. But then as soon as I start watching it, just like the first scene, I'm like hooked right in. With Daniel Day Lewis, very engaging actor anyway. Yeah, he really is. He knows how to pull the audience in. What what kind of advice would you give somebody really starting out looking to get into movie editing? Movie or uh, even television editing? Well, editing, I mean, let's say... I would, I mean, you, you just have to go for it. I think that the most common mistake that I see when I take films over uh, and in the character development is that a lot of people edit films and uh, they don't show people's reactions. Like, uh, for instance, they will have somebody deliver a line and then they stay on that person who's delivered the line and you hear their reaction, like uh, dialogue-wise, on their face. Once somebody's delivered their line, it's over. Go to the, like if you say, oh, you're a liar. I don't want to hear, no, I'm not still on the other person. I want to see the person's reaction to being called a liar. And uh, that's how you develop the characters and stuff. And uh, the big thing, especially in television these days, is to is to it just makes for quicker and speedier editing. Sometimes speed isn't always the key. You need to engage with the characters. You just always remember to to see the people react and give, as Kevin Crosby always says, give them their beats. That makes so much sense. This is yeah, this is gold because I was paying attention to that the other day when I rewatched the movie Stargate in preparation for this discussion. Um, and I noticed that sometimes you would cut to James Spader's face when he wasn't saying a single word, but there was so much emotion, you know, he was conveying in those reaction shots, you know, when, especially when there was the pandemonium of, you know, you know, with Kurt Russell's character and, you know, they didn't really trust who this guy was, who was decoding this stuff. And Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, you need to, like, for instance, I did this film. It wasn't a great movie, but it, uh, years ago for Canon. And they, it was a film that actually I, they, get, they asked me to take, take a look at and fix. And um, part of the problem was that the main lead character you didn't like. And you didn't find out really why you didn't like him until, you know, the last, to about two thirds into the movie. So I took uh, the scene that was two thirds into the movie and moved it into the, you know, the first 20 minutes. 
So you understood this character a lot more why he was such a miserable, sad character. And so that one had a little bit more sympathy for him. And it changed the whole tone of the movie that uh, you really, and so you, in, instead of watching for, you know, 50 minutes of film that you, and you don't care about the lead actor and uh, you don't, you're not engaged with him, you know, you, suddenly you just move it so that you think, oh, okay, I see. Well, he's like that because of this. And then after that, you have a bit more sympathy for him and you understand where he's coming from. And so it's, you really have to try and just in, always think of character and character development and, and making the audience engage with the, with the characters. Nice. Like the, even the last film I did, I had to change the performance of one of the actors. So it wasn't quite so hard and, and, uh, and just make them more likable. And it, it just changes the whole film. If you like the characters and you like you engage with the people, then... Uh, there has to be some empathy there, right? With the, yeah. with the characters. Even if they don't do things that are traditionally likable, there's got to be some sort of empathetic quality. Yeah, no, you just have to... I mean, you just have to be able to relate to them, you know, and to, to, uh, to understand them and like them and... and um, and so, you know, and everything, especially like if you're, you know, cutting action films, you know, it's like you have to care about the person who's in the action. Otherwise, the, the action doesn't work. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I'm happy you say that because I've always said that about action films. There's certain action films that I've seen that like there's like a half a second shot there or a two second shot there. Like, you know what I mean? It's so quick, but mm -hmm. certain things get lost in the sauce of, you know, like, well, you know, you, have to, you no longer if you care. If you don't care about the person and the action, or you, you know, you you have to you know, feel the danger that they're in, and 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 be worried for them, and be scared for them, and and um, you know all those environments you have to create. And and um, but if you don't, not really that into the to the person who's in, even if they're small characters, you know, you have to. You have to uh, feel for some. You have to be rooting for somebody. Otherwise, the action just won't work. Yeah, and that's where that's where I think you guys did a phenomenal job once again on the outpost because there was a lot of action on that, and there was even a lot of characters. But it was still somehow a, a character-driven piece, and you did really you. I found that as an I found as an audience that I was emotionally invested on what happened with the, each of these characters. Yeah, and I mean, it was, I mean, there was, you know, obviously the leads, but the, the the smaller roles were also very important in that film, and and you, I think you felt, you know, uh, you cared about all these people, and uh, I mean, it was a, I mean, it's a true story, and uh, I mean, it's remarkable that's, I mean, you know, uh, so few people did actually die because it was an outrageous situation that they were in. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, those eight that died, you really cared about them and, and uh, sympathized with. Definitely. 
And tell us what you're working on now. What's uh, new and exciting? Um, now I'm doing a just actually I've just finished it. I've just wrapped up actually in Kent. That's why I'm back in LA. Um, a film called Jolt with uh, Kate Beckinsale and Stanley Tucci, and uh, it's a it's it's a fun ride. It's a good entertaining film that Amazon are releasing the worldwide actually now they've actually bought it for worldwide and um yeah that should be out shortly and then being released this next month is uh, hitman's wife's bodyguard so that's uh, coming out in june 16 the hitman's wife's bodyguard with ryan reynolds selma hayek and samuel L. jackson definitely check it out when it comes out and uh, so all our one, audience Antonio, out there. Antonio Banderas is in this one too, and Morgan Freeman, and, and it's a really good cast, and it's a fun, fun film. It uh, scored very high in the previews, and uh, it's a funny movie. Nice. It's funny with a lot of action and fast moving. It's great. I look, for, I look forward to watching it. Yeah, Michael, we greatly appreciate having you on the podcast, and really honored to have talked to you well thank you very much great to be with you